We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. We put up our Halloween decorations this weekend. There's nothing like a fake corpse hanging from the front yard tree to get the neighbors yapping. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is uh, Hamilton today. Thanks for being here. Over the course of the pandemic, uh, those of us that uh, uh, weren't into streaming services found them, and um, and and boy, things took off. And, and it was like Peloton. I mean, it was or Peloton. What is it? Uh, Peletron's the TV for, I don't know. Anyway, uh, these sort of services went through the roof. And then in a post-pandemic uh, world, uh, a lot of them have tapered off a bit. And as always with these situations, it's how do you continue to monetize them in whatever the new world is. Netflix is gearing up to offer uh, cheaper options for subscribers who do not mind commercials. Uh, is it the programming that draws you to things like streaming devices or Netflix? Or is it, uh, is it lack of commercials? Or is it just the great content? Six ninety nine in the U.S., five ninety nine uh, for Netflix in Canada. Uh, let's talk with Robert Thompson, trustee, professor of television, radio, and film, director of the Blyer Center for Television and Pop Culture, Syracuse University, and with us now, Robert. Great to have you back. Hope you're doing well. I am, and I hope you are too. By the way, I love this Pelotron idea—an exercise bike <laughs> that turns into a robot. That sounds yeah. cool. <laughs> You know, and it would actually get you around. So, I mean, you avoid the price of gas. Maybe we're on to something here, Robert. I think so. That was the uh, that's the best idea I've heard all day. <laughs> all right, uh, we'll get R and D on that. So let's talk about uh, Netflix in a pandemic world, uh, maybe even before the pandemic, in a pandemic, and post pandemic. How have things changed for Netflix or other streaming services? Well, I guess the biggest change is that there are just so many of them now. I mean, uh, you think if we go back five years, no HBO Max, no Disney Plus, uh, you know, a lot of these things have have come really recently. Uh, And to the extent, though, that uh, just the Emmy nominations in the categories of best drama and best comedy for this last Emmy, you would have required six different uh, subscription services to watch the nominees nominees in only those two categories. So back in the day where pretty much Netflix had everything on it, uh, they had Friends, they had The Office. Now you need to get Peacock and HBO Max to get uh, those things. So the big thing is a lot more competition. The second thing is that in the last years and through COVID, pretty much everybody that's going to get streaming has finally, you know, thrown up their hands and gotten it. So if all of these places want to continue to grow, they've got to come up with other places to uh, uh, to make money. And that means either A, raising the prices, they're doing that almost constantly, and B, um, uh, coming up with new income sources, and that includes uh, selling advertisements. Oh, I forgot C, getting all those people who aren't paying for subscriptions to do so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's start with the ads, Robert. I mean, obviously, this has been a staple of TV since the early days. Uh, do we have an appetite for this? How do you think we're uh, the population is going to accept this, or uh, do they care? What are your thoughts on this? Oh, they do have a choice. So uh, the idea is that it's not like all of a sudden you're going to go to Netflix and have these irritating ads. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to continue to pay for the uh, standard or the premium thing, uh, nothing's going to change. You won't have ads. You'll still be able to download all of that. Uh, So essentially what Netflix is doing is adding a new service that if you want to not pay as much for streaming, you will have that option. And they, of course, will have ads. Do we have an appetite for ads? No, I don't think we have an appetite for interruptions. Do many people have an appetite for saving money on streaming? Yes, I think they do. It's getting to the point where uh, uh, having all these subscription things is getting to be kind of a rich person's game.
So uh, do we know how many ads? Like, will be there be a certain amount? Uh, will that be limited? Uh, s- uh, stop sets? How will this work? Will it look like traditional well, as TV? As of now, and of course this can change, just like the prices can change, uh, four to five minutes of ads per hour in 15 or 30 second chunks. They'll be before your program plays and in the middle. And if I know how most of these places position those ads, especially when you're watching a movie, it will be awkward and uh, uh, poor done but we'll have to uh, see if they do it uh, any different so four to five minutes an hour is certain it's about what hulu is certainly better than you'd get watching cable or watching the networks the networks now if you count all that stuff that isn't programming are closer to 16 minutes of uh, uh of that um and of course you get a um uh, cheaper price netflix is uh, Disney Plus is, of course, going to do this as well. But here's what Disney Plus did. Used to be $7.99 a month down here. They raised it to an unbelievable $10.99. And then come December, we'll be able to get the old price of $7.99, but with all the ads. Uh, is uh, do you, Can you time this? Will it be like normal watching a normal show where you could, like, will it get to the point where people will just time their food and bathroom breaks around these? think i mean obviously on broadcast tv we got really good at that because the the ad breaks were always at pretty predictable uh times so far uh advertising on things like hulu and other uh streaming services uh youtube for example has not been as predictable and as a matter of fact sometimes these things just pop up in the middle of uh in the middle of scenes not even yeah. waiting <laughs> yes. uh, breaks it's going to be interesting to see how that improves as more and more of these premium services services like Netflix and Disney Plus start using ads. The other thing we shouldn't completely forget is that advertisers, once they get in the picture, once you've got people paying money to be on your programs, um, they're going to start wanting to, uh, you know, have some say uh, in that. I don't know that that's going to be as overt as it was in the 1950s when the sponsor of a certain show uh, hmm. that was a candy company actually said, we don't want cookies mentioned in this show. I'm not kidding. That really happened. It was a show called Circus Boy. Um, but once you've got advertisers in the pictures and, and advertisers worry about controversy and boycotts and all the rest of it, I suppose this could have a chilling effect down the road in some of what these services did before they had advertised. Uh, we don't have much time left here, Robert, a few seconds, but is there much interest in those big back catalogs? Is it all about quantity rather than quality? Uh, there is, because you never know. I mean, what you're interested in, what I'm interested in, what the person interested in down the street uh, is all different. It's the big catalog. It's all this stuff. It's constant new things that keeps everybody happy enough to keep paying every month. Hmm. Now I'm looking for Circus Boy. Uh, Robert Thompson with us, trustee, professor of television, radio, film, director of the Byer Center for Television and Pop Culture at Syracuse University. Robert, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. If you go to a concert, you go to a show, sometimes you realize that there might be a little bit of enhancement, <laughs> and sometimes there should be more uh, when you see acts and such. And, you know, I, I guess over time and with technology, we've just come to expect that. But at what point do you draw the line? Um, how about when you can create something? without the person really doing it. Uh, earlier this month, uh, there was an acquisition by a couple of companies uh, and one call, uh, called Supertone. Its main asset is some software that it claims can create a hyper-realistic expressive voice that is not distinguishable from real humans. Soon we may be hearing more and more AI-generated music. To talk more about all of this, Alan Cross, he's got a great uh, article on this uh, on our Global News website, host of Ongoing History of New Music. Alan with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing okay. Doing okay. All right. So explain this to me. What does this mean? And is, does it mean what I think it means? And that is once you have recordings of everyone or a certain artist's expression, you can then write music around them. Yes, essentially. There has been a lot of research going into various types of voice synthesis over the last 10 years. I've seen some really creepy demonstrations where um, somebody will be asked to come up from the audience, speak a few words into a microphone, and then the person giving the presentation will somehow manipulate that 
into making uh, a, a very credible, uh, very credible performance of that person's, you know, singing or speaking in their own voice, just by the algorithm, the computers sampling that those few little bits of, of, of spoken words. Um, you probably have heard of, of deep fake, which is uh, a mm-hmm. way where you can create very credible simulations online of, of video and audio. And this is just getting more and more advanced as, as we go along. Um, let's talk about this acquisition you mentioned called uh, a company called Soundtone. It was purchased by a South Korean company called Hybe, H-Y-B-E. Hybe is the company behind a bunch of South Korean boy bands. Uh, it's a big entertainment conglomerate. And they're very concerned because BTS, the biggest of all the K-pop bands, is going on a hiatus that may last for three years. And this is because each of the seven members has to go in for compulsory military service, which will last between 18 and 21 months. And because Hmm. each member of the band is of a different age, they will be going in at staggered times. So it looks like uh, BTS will be out of commission for up to three years. This is a bad thing for Hype because BTS brought in three billion dollars and the South Korean economy is heavily reliant on the export of K-pop music when it comes to their GDP. That's not an exaggeration. So the thinking is that Hybe bought this sound tone company to, so they can sample, however it works, uh, BTS's vocal stylings. And while the band is on hiatus, they can continue to release new music, but without the band. They will just program a computer to make BTS sing. And so is this it, is this any different than a really, really advanced remix? Or is this where I can take their voices, take any information that I've sampled, then I can literally write a new song and create something that they have never even seen? That's right. And it'll sound like they're singing with their voice, with their intonations, with their phrasing, with their breathing. Yes. So wow. uh, we, we got a hint at this. Do you remember way back when there was a TV commercial where Fred Astaire was dancing with a, with a vacuum? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yep, Fred yep. Astaire had been dead for a very long time, but somehow they managed to resurrect him and, and put him in this TV commercial. And there was this lots of discussion about, wow, we're going to be able to resurrect dead movie stars and have them act once again. Uh, and then, you know, we saw the whole Forrest Gump thing where Tom Hanks shows up at all these various uh, interesting <laughs> historical events. Uh, and we're, again, we're thinking, wow, I mean, we can manipulate visual history. Well, this is just more along this, uh, yeah. this continuum where we're learning to make computers do mimic, uh, imitate human things. And, and singing and music can be one of them. Now, we're, we're, we've just talked about singing so far, but artificial intelligence is also being used to create music, not necessarily music for the radio or music for, you know, uh, public consumption in, in you know, like a, uh, like a song, for example, although that's not far away. Uh, the big thing right now is they want uh, production music and right. uh, incidental music. So if you've you know, got a TV show or you've got a movie or you've got uh, more importantly, something like a, a, you know, the, the, the music that you hear in, in, in commercials, you know, somebody has to write that and that's very expensive. Uh, it's music that's fairly disposable that has a specific purpose and then it's gone. So one of the thinking, the thing that people, uh, one of the things people are thinking about is if we can get a computer to write this incidental music, you know, in 15, 30, 60 second chunks or whatever it is, that will be very, very, uh, it'll be very cost saving when it comes to some of these productions. Once that if, starts really getting a hold of, of uh, getting a hold of, of, of things, 
Then we move to virtual uh, pop stars in a box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, man, imagine if the colonel had this in Elvis's time. Um, is this technology advancement or is this dehumanization of art or is it the computer that's now the art? There are a lot of questions that have to be answered. For example, if a computer writes a song, who owns the song? Who owns the copyright? Who owns the publishing? Hmm. That hasn't been worked out yet. Is it the person who programmed the computer? Is it the person who wrote the software? Is it the person who made the hardware? A combination of all the, you know, all of that. Or, or would would, would a court say no, no, no? Uh, in, in, you know, based on on you know uh, precedent law, uh, the composer is the machine. So the machine owns the copyright, which creates all kinds of issues. <laughs> This is just getting started. A fascinating discussion. You can read the column on the Global News website. Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing history of new music, artificial intelligence, and what you hear. Alan, thanks for the time. Be well. You bet. All right. Over the weekend, the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum held its 50th anniversary gala. Where did that go? Uh, where it was announced uh, to the museum, or that the museum was getting three new planes. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Al Mikheloff is with us, marketing manager with the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, and here now. Al, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thank you, Scott. Uh, yeah, it was quite the announcement uh, on the uh, at our 50th anniversary gala on Saturday by our president, Dave Rohr. And uh, I was just looking at our calendar here, and actually, 50 years ago, this Friday, uh, was when we first arrived in Hamilton. We had one aircraft. Uh, Dennis Bradley flew a Firefly into Hamilton. We rented some space at the back of the hangar. And uh, who knew at that time it would grow into this uh, world-renowned museum that we have right now? I remember, uh, obviously not quite that far, uh, that long ago, but as things started to accumulate and, uh, and going around the museum in the earlier days, I'm not going to say the early days, but it was fascinating to me just finding pieces on the floor as these planes were in the midst of restoration at some point in time. It's quite fascinating to see all of that and the work and, and the meticulous work that goes into restoring these planes. Oh, and, and we love doing it. That's uh, Many of the aircraft that you would have seen in pieces uh, many years ago are now flying examples uh, sitting in the museum today. So uh, this all started way back when with one plane and then obviously uh, has, has grown to what it is now. Uh, where do these planes come from? How do you acquire them over the years? Well, most of them come from donations. We're, we're a nonprofit organization. Uh, we are not government funded. Uh, we do receive some limited funding, but not specifically to go buy aircraft. So we're, we rely on donations, uh, and that's how many of the aircraft have arrived. Sometimes there's a handful of guys who see an aircraft, they pool their money, and they think we should have it, so they, they donate the money with the intention of buying this particular aircraft. So let's talk about the new ones that uh, were just announced this past weekend and, and what they've added to the collection. Tell us what they are. Sure. So we've, uh, we've added three significant aircraft, a Supermarine Spitfire, an Avro CF-100 Canuck, and a North American Sabre. Now, regular visitors to the museum will say, well, wait a second, I've seen all of those aircraft up in your museum, and, th and they're not wrong. Uh, the Spitfire has actually been in our building for 25 years. Uh, the Canuck and the Sabre have also been there for many, many years, but they've been on loan from the mm. Canada Aviation and Space Museum in Ottawa. Uh, they're known as Ingenium now. And uh, they've been on loan for us that long. And just uh, just last week, they uh, decided to uh, transfer ownership to us and give them. Now, what's, uh, what's different about it now is we couldn't touch those aircraft when they were in our museum. We couldn't uh, we couldn't paint them. We couldn't do anything to them. So they were they were a little bit of dust collectors. But now we can get into it, and we've decided to uh, to take the Spitfire and restore it to flying condition. So of the almost fifty that you have uh, that are housed there, how many of these uh, are airworthy? Uh, we, we fly regularly about 15 of the aircraft. There's a few that few more that are airworthy, but we choose not to fly them. 
Uh, and what goes into restoring something that has to be airworthy? Obviously, that's different than something you're just doing for cosmetic re- uh, reasons. Is that accurate? Yeah. Like, uh, for example, with the Spitfire, now it's uh, it's virtually a complete aircraft, and we consider it almost like uh, you would like a, a car barf, um, barn find. You get right. to see this, uh, and you don't get this too often in airplanes in these days. So it's virtually complete. Uh, which is a great uh, starting point for our restoration, but it is going to require a full restoration. We're going to tear apart the aircraft. We're going to send the engine out to a professional overhaul shop in the U.S., and we're going to have to obtain a new new propeller. Um, This, uh, you know, as this donation just happened, um, our first step in the restoration will actually be a fundraising campaign, which will launch in the spring. And in the meantime, We'll probably, uh, well, no, we will do an assessment of the aircraft just to see what is actually required for the restoration of this this airplane. Now, the nice thing being, it is virtually complete, so we're not going to be searching the world for a new throttle component or or things Mm. like that. I'm sure there's a few things we're going to have to replace, but it makes it much, much easier. How world-renowned is this museum? Well... I think uh, we're, we're fairly well well known around the music uh, the world these days. Uh, just to give you an example, in in 2014, uh, we flew the Lancaster. It took 18 hours to fly the yeah. Lancaster to over to England. Yeah. Uh, we flew it for almost two months around around the country, going to different air shows and events. And we estimated it. We put the aircraft in front of 10 million people. They they have some pretty big air shows over there. So I, I, and you know, you see the attendance of people coming through the museum. There, it's Japan, Germany, France. It, it's everywhere, and especially England. So uh, people, we're a destination for a lot of aviation enthusiasts and, and non-aviation enthusiasts. Al Mikloff with us, marketing manager with the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. If you haven't, you got to check them out. Fiftieth uh, anniversary gala just celebrated recently, and three more acquisitions that were kind of there anyway. Al, uh, thanks much for the time. Be well. Good luck for the next fifty. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Emergencies Act inquiry is uh, ongoing. Uh, Latest, I guess, is uh, police thought that it would be over in a few days and that uh, they figured they got through the first weekend and everything was okay. Uh, And then, obviously, we know what happened as it just continually... Uh, progressed. What will we learn at the end of this six-week inquiry? Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University. He's with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, thank you. So what do you think we're going to learn at the end of the six weeks, Henry? What do you think we're going to know? Well, I think I, I think what <laughs> the more you talk about it and think about it and hear the testimony, which I've been watching, is essentially how people who are in authority uh, basically, uh, you know, and uh, Instead of uh, hoping for the best and preparing for the worst, they they hope for the best and they prepare for the best. And they they this whole idea they expected these people were going to go after uh, a, a weekend in Ottawa, when in fact they had information that came from the hotels because the hotels were getting huge bookings by people <laughs> who were in the convoy coming to Ottawa, and they wanted month long reservations, and they and they reported that to the police. And the police ignored it. I mean, it's 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 that's a bit mind-boggling there, and uh, it's uh, yeah. And uh, but I think the same thing we've seen, uh, incidentally, in in uh, in the United States with the 9/11. I'm sorry, with the uh, January 6th hearings that have been going on, the police just had all these messages down there that all these people are coming and they're going to cause trouble, and what the supplies that they're bringing and you know, all this sort of stuff. And they just sort of figured, well, we'll handle them. It's not, uh, it's never happened before. (laughs) But these people are all, you know, more determined than than the police ever realized in both places. So, you you know, the police have to be really much more, and I think political authorities as well, 
much more, you know, when you get, you know, signals coming out and we monitor, you know, all sorts of information coming out, they got to believe that and they got to prepare for the worst, you know, prepare for, you know, something that's really going to be bad. And, and that's that's the first lesson that I would hear here. Uh, how do you think this is going to be packaged at the end? Do you think we will find out whether there was a threat to national security or not, which seems to be the criteria, the threshold that the government has to meet here? Well, uh, it, th- that's unclear. I, I really don't know how that is going to turn out. There may be stuff coming out. We've already, I've already heard on the, uh, you know, on the, on these uh, testif- uh, the testimony that that we heard. We are hearing things that that I never, even though I followed what was going on all through the January and February up there, things that I never heard of that that are that were kept secret. And uh, so we don't know what's actually going going to come out in terms of, uh, you know, the testimony. National security, I think if there's anything that uh, that uh, will touch national security, it might be the argument about closing down the bridges to the United States, that the economy would be such a, you know, mess because they couldn't move, you know, traffic across the, the bridges. That, that's, that, that would probably be, you know, more important than what actually was was probably likely to happen in uh, in Ottawa, but uh, I'm not really sure at this point. Uh, the uh, we're hearing that the bridges were open before the uh, the Emergencies Act was declared. The OPP said no, they had um, they didn't they they didn't need the Emergencies Act to move forward. They just needed leadership of some sort. Uh, the fact that the bridges were open and even the provincial police say uh, the tools are there. It's just nobody seemed to want to take charge. That well, that's absolutely true. And I mean, one group that. Uh, uh, I mean, one who didn't take charge, of course, is is the provincial government. We what we've learned just today, I think it was, was that essentially the the city manager called the uh, people in the Ontario government, the cabinet ministers in charge, and they said we need help, and they said specifically what we need, and the provincial government said no, we're not going to get involved. And you know, I, I, with all due respect, Henry, I honestly think that's a red herring because they asked the Toronto police chief the same thing. And it's like he basically said, you don't have a plan. Uh, and again, here we are now with a protest. The, uh, these people came to protest yeah. uh, Justin Trudeau on a federal precinct, which is Wellington Street, on federal property. The borders are federal jurisdictions. You know, these, the, these, uh, the, this protest, three-week protest, didn't happen at the steps of provincial legislatures. It happened on the prime minister's front lawn. Is it right to now be pointing the direction to the premier after the police chief of the own city, uh, the mayor of the own city, the prime minister of the of the country, you know, basically did nothing. Now, Doug Ford's supposed to go in and save the day. That seems kind of funny to me. No, I don't think that he should save the day. But I mean, there 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 were people I mean, I think all of them at all three levels of government were reluctant to use the tools that they had to essentially nip this thing in the bud. That is within the first three days. And they all were looking for somebody else to do it. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I think there's plenty of blame to go around here. I, I just want to basically say this is all, you know, Ford's fault or anybody No, I understand fault. that. This is every, everybody. I, I just think everybody, you know, everybody was looking for somebody else to, to do it, to save it. And they, none of them took it seriously, unfortunately. But this, to me, is the feds and the truckers' protest. I mean, that's where this started. It started with the prime minister calling them misogynistic and and racist after 90% of the population is vaccinated. And then leaving it on the shoulders of the of the mayor and the police chief, who obviously did a poor job to clean it up. Yeah. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, I mean, I don't think any of this should have got to or needed to get to the, the state that it was if people just stood up and said, said uh, what they should have said at the beginning of all of this yeah well i, I, I as i said I, I i think you know the all all of the leaders basically just were looking for somebody else to do to do this nobody nobody imagined what was going to happen that they were going to stay for that long and they just basically you know kept putting putting things off and things just got worse and worse and the more the worse it got it got those people got more entrenched and you know and then especially when you know you had the uh you know, so many of the residents, you know, were being bothered yeah. and harassed and couldn't yeah, sleep because of, the tr- of that for, for over, over, over a month. 
businesses were going out, went out of business because they couldn't have customers because of what was going on. So there was a lot, you know, there there was a, there was a lot of people who suffered here, and how yeah. you know how you eventually you know say how how important how uh, does this meet the bar of of yeah. bringing out that uh, you know the emergency act. Uh, you know, I, it's going to be, you know, I'm not yeah. 100% sure, but clearly there was, there was a lot of bad things going on here. There's no question for all sorts Henry, of reasons. Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Loblaws temporarily freezing the prices of all of its no-name branded products. Uh, good for business? Is it, is it empathy or is it good PR? Uh, Jugbeat Singh says apparently it's because of him because he's been calling out these stores. They're finally lowering the prices. We'll see if the other chains follow suit and they are listening to him as well. All right. To discuss all of this, is it empathy? Is it, uh, is it about taking care? of us or is it about good PR? Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, doing very well, thanks, Scott. So your thoughts on this and, and what Loblaws is doing, is it empathy, is it good business, or is it just good PR? Well, it's good business, it's good PR. Let me just step back for a moment. I've been teaching the strategy capstone course for 30 years, and strategy is all about how firms create value, which is the core function of any company. And this is straight out of the uh, the uh, the great Michael Porter from Harvard Business School, who is an economist, by the way. His three degrees are in economics and microeconomics and industrial organization. And uh, he uh, argued, and I've, and he's not the only one, many others have argued, the purpose of the firm is to create something of value that you and I want to buy because nobody can make, no company can make you or I buy their product. Unlike governments that have the legitimate monopoly to or make you pay your taxes or you go to jail, private companies can't say, I compel you to go and buy uh, the products that I sell you. If I don't like my Samsung, I can get rid of it and go buy an Apple iPhone. If I don't like my Honda, it's I can go buy another car. It's called consumer sovereignty. And so companies go to great lengths to try to entice us to buy from them. And so they run ad campaigns, they have sales, you know, they, you know, HST sales, we buy the, we pay the HST if you come and buy from us. And so what Loblaws is doing is it's essentially a sale. Okay, so they're reducing the price by not raising the price, and they're doing that as an enticement, an incentive to incentivize you and I to patronize Loblaws. Now, yes, they're doing it because in the court of public opinion, uh, the NDP have been, I'll be very blunt, have been demagoguing on this, and I call it demagoguing. Because uh, what the NDP has, and Mr. Singh has not done, has stated that if you, if a company does not make profits, they don't pay taxes. You pay your corporate income taxes on your profits. So to demonize profit making is to essentially demonize the paying of of taxes by companies, which is silly. I don't think he's thought that through, quite frankly. And and so th- th- this is, you know, there's a lot of sensitivity because of the inflation. A lot of consumers are upset. So you know, it is good business, and it is a you know, it's a bit of a a PR gimmick, a bit of an advertising gimmick to get us to go there instead of somebody else. Uh, many are asking why now? Why not if this was a concern during the pandemic? Um, you know, that, that that that's an excellent point. That really is an excellent point. I mean, every business is facing uh, uh, cost pressures. Uh, and, you know, and some and remember, not all businesses succeed. If companies don't make profits and they lose money, they will go to business. And I look at the bankruptcies every year published by what used to be called Consumer and Corporate Affairs Canada. They've got a big, long acronym now. I can't remember the name. And uh, people don't realize thousands of businesses fail annually. Uh, And they fail because they're losing money because they can't make their way. They can't generate enough business to cover their costs of doing business. And and so this is they're responding like all the other businesses. They're struggling. They're dealing with supply chains that are been disrupted. They're unreliable. (laughs) The suppliers are putting the prices up and uh, and and the inflation kicked in which really made it brought it home to roost for millions of Canadians, which made them angry. And businesses are smart enough. Loblaws is smart enough to realize that if consumers get too angry, become too much, if there's too much of a backlash, they'll go to their elected officials and say, do something. You know, we want, you know, 
price controls imposed. And we've had wage and price controls in this country. I lived through it in 1974, 75, 76. It was Pierre Trudeau in six and five. And we don't want to go down that road. And so I, what Loblaws did, I think it was a, a prudent uh, strategy. And it is a strategy. Will the public think differently of Loblaws for doing this now? Will others follow suit? The, that's always the danger in strategy, and that's what we're talking about, this stuff that I've been teaching, is that with strategy is <laughs> your competitors can mimic you. They can copy your strategy. And then it's not such it's not as useful anymore at differentiating your company and your products from the other guys. So if the other firms, and I'm talking the metros and the Sobies and the other big chains, follow suit, then that will neutralize the strategy. So that, there is that risk. But to your other question, uh, I, I think it's uh, the other thing that uh, it's going to work and and the, the, it's going to give them a lot of free publicity because they're hooking their 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 this marketing campaign, in essence, into a very popular uh, subject right now. I mean, by popular, it's very contentious. The whole uh, question of inflation. This is going to generate lots of free publicity so that talk radio stations like yours and the networks are going to be talking about this. And so Loblaws is going to get some phenomenal publicity out of this, way beyond the, the mere announcement, which is going to drive some additional customers into their stores. So therefore, the campaign I is going to work. Jugmeet Singh has said the grocers are gouging us. Are they? Are the groceries making? Are the grocers making too much money off of this pandemic? Uh, I don't believe so. If you believe, I'm sorry for the jargon, but if you believe that uh, uh, in price discovery, which is this the fancy term for companies jockeying, jockeying and jostling out there, you know, the interaction of supply and demand, you put your price up, people go away, they stop buying it, you're putting your price back down. That's what price discovery is, trying to find out what is the optimal price. When inflation is low and stable, year after year, prices are nice and predictable. You don't have to the same uh, degree of searching for what the right price is. When you have inflation and unreliable supply chains like we have now, there's a lot of companies experimenting, trying to find out where is that sweet spot. And that's what Jagmeet Singh is objecting to unwittingly, in my opinion. He doesn't understand that this is just price discovery in action. It will come to an end as prices stabilize. And I do believe they will, because I do believe the Bank of Canada is going to continue to put prices up, excuse me, interest rates up, as will the Federal Reserve. And they're going to bring, they're determined to bring inflation back down to 2%. And then this issue is going to go away. What will this cost Loblaws? Is it worth it? Well, you know, it's like any incentive campaign when you uh, run in, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, Amazon does these, what do they call Black Fridays uh, in American Thanksgiving? Uh, you know, after Christmas, uh, retailers across the country, you know, will have 25% off, 50% off because they want to move unsold inventory. You know, there's a calculation inside each company that the cost of the incentives, that is the cut in price, the reduction in price, is going to be more than offset by the additional volume. And so they I don't challenge these internal accountants and number crunchers. They've made they've made the decision. I'm sure they've crunched their numbers and said, yes, it's going to cost us, you know, X millions of dollars of foregone income. But it's then on the other side, it's going to generate some additional uh, dollars of increased sales. And so they've done a cost benefit analysis. It's classical strategy you know, strategy decision-making, and, and they think it's it's a good deal. And, you know, given the publicity they're getting across, and they are a national chain, remember, uh, I think th I thought this was a very clever strategy by Loblaws to respond, to show that they're sensitive to public opinion, they're sensitive to the needs of consumers who are really struggling and feeling the pain, and at the same time, they get a lot of free publicity, and they increase their sales, and it's for a period, what, until January. So it's, what, uh, 40 45, 60 days period. So they're basically going to have a sale for 60 days. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, Loblaws, temporarily freezing the prices of its no-name branded products until the new year. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Headline in the National Post, Canada's immature foreign policy being nice 
in quotes, doesn't cut it. New world disorder. Niceness can no longer suffice as our nation's foreign policy. Uh, we need to grow up and uh, to talk more about all of this. And specifically, a situation, several men, uh, this was in the UK, several men who appeared to work with the Chinese government attacked an activist protesting uh, outside the Chinese consulate in Manchester on Sunday. At one point, the unidentified men dragged the protester inside the consulate gates and then punched him repeatedly. At least eight men, including four who joined in the attack, entered the consulate building afterwards, according to the BBC. We have talked about this before. Operatives of the Chinese Communist Party working here in Canada or other countries uh, to obviously ensure that the interests of the Chinese Communist Party are maintained around the world. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald laurier Institute, and with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am good. But, you know, like you say, this story is very disturbing. Uh, and I wonder if we're going to start seeing outrageous stuff like this uh, in the consulates and embassy of China here in Canada. And we have talked to people on this show and you have spoke of uh, Canadians from China who have been harassed by the Chinese, uh, the Chinese Communist Party here for, I guess, speaking out inappropriately about China or the relatives affected back home. So obviously this is the tip of the iceberg because to, to drag someone in through the gates of a of a consulate, I shouldn't be laughing, but that sounds like something out of a James Bond movie. Yeah, well, I mean, the police, uh, the British police went in to rescue the person who's having the shit beaten out of him. I mean, this was no just sort of little thing. The the person that they that they beat up was hospitalized and had multiple injuries, um, you know, quite serious. And I, I guess the other question is, um, how come the Chinese consulate in Manchester has thugs on staff? You know, these are presumably the same thugs that are harassing people off embassy property. But in this case, they came out of the consulate, um, dragged one of the protesters that was protesting outside the gates into the consulate property and started to to engage in quite serious violence against this person such that they ended up in hospital. And, you know, the British police went past the consulate gate and and uh, pulled the, the victim out and pushed off the, the thugs. But, you know, technically under international law, the police shouldn't have entered the consulate. So, you know, they God knows they could have beaten the person to death. Uh, well, I don't know. You know, the, just, the whole thing just seems so out of control. And evidently the, the Chinese um, consul general to Manchester was involved in this action um, in in some sort of way certainly he was able to see it and may have been directing it and you know and the chinese are upset because they're protesters outside their embassy and they're putting up signs and they're saying things that the chinese government doesn't like about xi jinping but you know that's the right in free and democratic countries and there's certainly no justification for the chinese consular officials taking the law into their own hands and inflicting violence on somebody and i imagine that that person was probably someone of chinese ethnicity that the chinese government doesn't acknowledge as being a foreigner and entitled to the protections of of foreign citizenship, even in Britain. You have talked about and we've talked about on the show about Chinese Canadians being harassed here. Uh, There's even reports that there are some sort of police stations set up where these sort of things are monitored. Is there any accuracy to any of that? Yeah, I think the the police stations are pretty well verified. And to my understanding, the RCMP has found in addition to the uh, Spanish NGO safeguard um, uh, defenders um, finding that there were three of these Chinese police stations in Toronto that there also seem to be uh, police stations in other parts of the country and they seem to have isolated one in Richmond out in BC so you know what these are about is providing a permanent office for illegal Chinese police activities inside Canada to try and get persons from China who have come to Canada, uh, political dissidents, um, corrupt officials, um, honest to God, um, triad criminal gang members to um, go back to China, hand over their criminal gains to the Chinese police authorities and to suffer Chinese justice. In the past, they've seemed to have done it ad hoc. You know, they 
they'd send people into Canada on false visas claiming that they were coming for business purposes and they would be invited by a Chinese Canadian business claiming that these people were in fact business partners and it turned out that they would they were police operating inside our country you know we've got evidence of this um there has been um, the police have confessed in some cases, uh, the Chinese police confessed the Canadian authorities that they engaged in this activity when they were doing a proper attempt to to bring a Chinese criminal back to China. So it's not it's not something that's being made up. But the fact that the Canadian government does nothing about it is uh, emboldening them to do more of it. And, you know, if consulates are hiring professional thugs to to beat people up, to try and get them to see the Chinese government's point of view. Don't you think that those thugs should be uh, not allowed to function under diplomatic protection in our country? Or if they're not diplomats and are simply, you know, thugs here on visas or uh, who've acquired Canadian citizenship, shouldn't they be brought before the law and, hmm. and um, you know, made an example of so that uh, we make it send a message to Chinese regime that this kind of behavior is just not something that we are going to tolerate anymore. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurie Institute. Several, uh, or rather, several men who worked for the, appeared to work for the uh, Chinese embassy, pulling a protester inside the gates in Manchester, laying a beating on, and the rest is uh, all recorded by the BBC, as they say. Uh, thank you, Charles. Be well. Good to speak with you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, I want to read you a couple of headlines. Uh, one from the National Post. No more Mr. Nice Canada. Um, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Canada must assert itself on the world stage. Uh, in the Globe and Mail, uh, Freeland issues a clarion call from Canada's foreign policy void. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Jack Cunningham is with us. PhD program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, and the Monk School, uh, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Jack, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. Uh, it seems that uh, Canada is kind of changing its tune. The feds are changing their tune on how they look at uh, foreign uh, governments, especially those uh, w- with uh, particularly tough regimes at the head. At one time, it was, if we let them in, we'll show them how great we are, and they will abide uh, by our systems and play along. Obviously, that is not the case. Is Canada changing its position on the way it views places like Russia, places like China. It is, albeit uh, quite belatedly. I mean, I, I, I think uh, Minister Freeland has, uh, is a pretty unillusioned sort and has, uh, has, has uh, been, been, been wise to what uh, Russia and China are like for, uh, for quite some time. That's more than I can say for the rest of the government, however. And I think this media indicate a shift in government thinking towards a more realistic assessment of the world situation and particularly with the fact that we have enemies out there is she speaking differently than the government some are saying there's con- conflicting uh views coming out here it's hard to understand which one's driving the bus here i think the tone and the emphasis is definitely different uh she has emphasized much more emphatically than anybody else in the government has so far uh the fact that uh uh, international politics is uh, is sometimes a zero sum game that uh, my loss is your gain and vice versa and that uh, and that uh, trying to be reasonable doesn't always pay uh that's a bit of a shift for, in, in in emphasis from what we generally get from the prime minister uh is this mean we're not uh, that we've spent time riding on others coattails i mean i can think particularly when it came to uh, the view of china around the two michaels we were tiptoeing there obviously we had to uh but then even with covid19 vaccination and the and the prime minister making deals with china there it seemed that we're constantly reaching out but getting kicked in the rear end is that changing i hope so uh it's uh, it's early to say but we'll uh We'll see. I mean, Freeland's speech outlined a number of concrete measures that uh, Canada and other democracies can take to show that they're serious about uh, adjusting to changed world conditions, including uh, running supply chains through one another so that we're not dependent on autocracies for crucial minerals or uh, or crucial vaccines. Uh, that would be, if if that were to materialize, it would be a good step forward. 
What about energy? Because obviously, especially the conflict in Europe right now between Russia and, and Ukraine, well, and the rest of the world, uh, this is, we've seen energy being weaponized. Uh, are we going to see a tone, a change in tone there? That uh, is likely to be a tough sell around the uh, the cabinet table. Uh, Minister, uh, Energy Minister Guibault is, uh, sorry, Environment Minister Guibault is, uh, is, is uh, very much in the dogmatic environmentalist camp. I'm sure there are others around the cabinet table who are as well, perhaps including the prime minister himself. Uh, So uh, getting, uh, although Freeland's uh, remarked the other day that Canada is open to economically viable LNG uh, facilities is uh, is another encouraging sign. Uh, Are are politicians and therefore Canadians convinced that by doing this, by taking the direction we are on climate change, and I'm not denying it here, something needs to be done, but by taking this direction on climate change, um, we can't save the planet, but we can provide clean energy for the rest of the world. Are we understanding that? Are we getting that? Are we understanding that that's what the rest of the world wants from us? Not for us to take our emissions from below 2% to below 1%, but to help the rest of the world where they're burning 20 and 30% coal and, and emissions and such. Are we understanding that we can't save the planet, but we can help with our energy? I think most Canadians understand that uh, viscerally, if not uh, if not analytically. Uh, the government here, I think, has been behind the electorate. I'm hoping that Freeland's speech suggests that the government is starting to catch up. Uh, when will we know? Well, uh, we probably within the next few months. Uh, what uh, what 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 happens in terms of spending priorities? What uh, what does the next federal budget uh, do in terms of defense spending? We've heard an awful lot about defense spending, but uh, not a lot has actually materialized. Uh, what uh, what are what are we going to do with uh, with regard to uh, to energy? I mean, that's uh, that's crucial to maintaining a reasonably united front against Ukraine. Your, Western Europe is in for uh, a really tough winter unless we are able to uh, to help. And even if we do help, it's uh, it's likely to be a fairly modest contribution. Uh, does the prime minister now see, or are they now seeing, a business case for Canadian liquid natural gas? Well, it's there, and Freeland has essentially made it. I assume that the prime minister is, however, reluctantly uh, on board. Uh, otherwise, she wouldn't be. She probably wouldn't be making uh, these these comments in such uh, such unambiguous terms. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Municipal election coming up October 24th. Trying to cram in as much as we can in the next little while. And uh, let's bring in Keenan Loomis, Hamilton mayoral candidate. He is with us now. Keenan, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. I'm doing great. We're one week out. This is amazing. I know, and you were like one of the first ones, or the first one, I believe, to throw your hat in the ring. So what's it been like to do this since you, I mean, you've been at this for a few weeks, several months now, I'm thinking. Uh, when did you yeah, declare? Well, Jan- was it January? I in, in January that I was stepping down from yeah. the Chamber of Commerce to run for mayor and uh, filed my uh, mayoral paperwork on May 2nd, the very first day. And I think we're at 169 days uh, into the uh, campaign, so... It's quite surreal to realize that uh, we're about a week away. So difference then and now, what are you seeing? Well, what we're seeing is a huge amount of excitement for change in Hamilton, for a non-politician to uh, come in to City Hall and bring the change that everybody needs to see. The, the, be the organization that is able to help us meet our challenges uh, and to meet all of the great opportunities that we have, the most opportunities that we have had in decades. But we need great leadership, and that's what everybody is saying. So it's been uh, quite amazing, a, a really warm welcome across the city, no matter where we go. Is that what you're hearing at the door as far as issues, is we want change? Because I've asked the same question to Bob Bertina. He said he's hearing at the door anyone but Andrea. Andrea Horvath said she's hearing housing. What are you hearing that the issues are at the door? Well, certainly housing and affordability uh, is a big concern. Uh, Value for taxes 
is another major concern here as well. And, you know, my, uh, my whole point is that, uh, you know, we cannot continue to elect career politicians. More of the same will just lead to more of the same. And people really do want a, a new innovative thinker, a new generation of fresh leadership at City Hall. Um, you know, and, and they want an optimistic uh, vision as well. What we're seeing is, you know, a lot of tax coming from our competitors, um, but that's all they know how to do. That's what career poli politicians do when they're desperate. Um, they want an optimistic vision for the city, and that's what we've been able to provide. Uh, name recognition, the biggest challenge for you, uh, because the others are so well known in the area? I would say so, but that's why we went out early, you know, and we have closed that gap uh, considerably. I would say now that, uh, you know, everybody uh, that is voting has given us consideration, has looked at our platform, likes what they see, likes the vision, likes the, the leadership, likes the fact that, you know, I'm doing it for the right reasons. The fact that, you know, I'm raising a family right here, right now. So I understand the challenges of affordability. Um, and, and they like that somebody has been in it, uh, you know, from the very beginning, all in, um, as opposed to, you know, treating this as a fallback option or as a retirement plan. Uh, you were with the Chamber of Commerce for years as head of it. What does that bring to you? What does that bring to the discussion? Well, the perspective of certainly the, the, the business community, that's been uh, really, really uh, important when we look at growth. But, you know, what we worked uh, as the Chamber um, it was not just the private sector. We worked with, you know, the anchor institutions. We worked with labor unions. Um, we worked with uh, not-for-profits in this community as well. So people want somebody who can bring everybody together around a goal. And for us, it was about creating a stronger economy. That is obviously uh, very important as we continue going forward. But now they want somebody as well who can bring uh, uh, the whole range of stakeholders together around some really thorny issues like affordable housing and and homelessness and and uh, mental health and addiction supports and so many others and so you know I've been uh, really blessed to have the opportunity to engage with so many community groups and and so many really engaged citizens that are doing incredible things in this community and they just they're they're not looking to the city necessarily for for solutions but what they're looking for is empowerment um, to to be able to come together and and that's just what they're not getting right now they're not getting any cooperation. Um, from the city in addressing our challenges and taking advantage of our opportunities. Uh, we've heard lots at the provincial level about uh, allowing the mayor of Toronto and Ottawa more how uh, more powers. Uh, this trying to move the uh, the housing meter, trying to stop the back uh, the the um, what's slowing down the the system that's slowing down uh, development and such. Um, we're even hearing commercials about uh, uh, you know who is a secret uh, uh, you know spreader or a secret. Uh, uh, I forgot what the word the terms that they've used um sprawler secret sprawler sorry thank you um what about when it comes to housing and the mayor's powers and getting those infield lots uh filled uh, what's your position on housing well as we uh announced in late july because we knew this was the biggest issue for folks uh affordability is uh top of mind and we know that supply is the mm -hmm. biggest driver of that so we announced a plan to build 50,000 new homes in Hamilton uh, over the next 10 years. And that's homes of all types, certainly uh, um, private sector developments uh, for sure, but also affordable housing and supporting our affordable housing providers uh, that are uh, coalesced around the Hamilton is Homes Coalition. Um, they have about 3,300 units that are right now um, in, uh, in the pipeline, but are being held up by City Hall. So when we build out those 50,000 units over the next 10 years, um, 1,000 of those each year has to be dedicated to affordable housing, which is uh, we're doing about 250 right now. And that's clearly not enough to, to meet the demand. So what we have to do is we have to take down the barriers uh, at City Hall, reduce the red tape, uh, facilitate these development proposals and get people to work uh, in building the places that, you know, our children uh, need so that they can move out of the house so that you know, our seniors need so that they can age in place. So and, do, uh, need, do the mayors need new, uh, more power for that, Keenan, to get that whip through? I don't think so. That's if uh, if you're not, uh, you know, governing by consensus. 
Um, and that's exactly what I intend to do is, is governed by consensus. As, as I mentioned, I announced I was running in, in January um, and filed my papers on, uh, on May 2nd, well before there was any talk about strong mayor powers. And the whole point of me doing this was that, you know, it has become um, such a toxic environment at City Hall and we can't get anything done. And we need a mayor who is able to bring people together. And we have such an incredible opportunity with at least seven new voices and faces around that table. It really matters who is in the mayor's office uh, for that moment. And of course, I look at my competitors and they have been a part of the problem in the past. They have had their time and they do not have the solutions necessary to bring us into the 21st century. Uh, received endorsement from Steelworkers Local 7135 today. How important are endorsements like that? Well, they're very important, um, especially the steelworkers. You know, steel is such a backbone of our community. It's, a, it's, it's the fabric uh, of our community. We've been built on steel. Um, and to be able to, to work with uh, a, a labor group like the steelworkers, like Leuna as well, we've received their support. They know the types of work that I have done in this community. Um, in uh, advocating for LRT, um, in ad advocating for, for growth. You know, it doesn't just help developers um, and the private sector when we advocate for growth. It, it helps laborers as well because it creates jobs. Um, we worked with labor unions on uh, helping them get through COVID and, and workforce uh, and labor force issues as well. And so uh, in protecting, of course, Canadian steel when Donald Trump uh, levied his, uh, his tariffs. So they looked at my body of work and and they liked what they've seen um, and my ability to work uh, going forward uh, collaboratively. And Frank Crowder himself mentioned, you know, how uh, career politicians are not what we need at this moment. And he's absolutely right. So I was really happy to receive the endorsement of uh, USW today. Keenan Loomis with us, Hamilton mayoral candidate. We'll have him on again and the others as we approach October 24th. Keenan, thanks for the time. Best of luck. Thanks, Scott. All the best to you. Everybody vote October 24th. It's really important. Scott Radley's coming up after the 6 o'clock news, hosting the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing so far so good. Um, but, it, but it's Monday, and I'm kind of dozy. That being said, um, we've seen uh, Jagmeet Singh come out and uh, criticize uh, big grocery chains and such for gouging and, and not passing any savings on to uh, customers and such. Now he's taking credit for Loblaws uh, freezing prices on their no-frills, uh, some of their no-frills items until January 31st. Is this empathy or is this good PR? because we've been all, all been talking about Loblaws all day. Mm, I wish he could take some credit for freezing gas taxes. Yes, Ooh, no, that's not, it. Not or as, maybe, or maybe, or less, or better yet, let's fix health care. What happened there? We were going to fix health care. That's sort of been sidetracked. Well, I, I, yeah, I don't know what's happened with that whole thing. I mean, I thought that this combination between the two parties was supposed to make everything flow wondrously so that Canada was going to essentially be a governance utopia where there's no holdups and everything happens. I, and of course, you know, we're being a little facetious, but I mean, ha, has there been any, has there been any discernible benefit to Canada other than not having another election? Well, we're getting the, dental care. We're getting dental are care. We? Are we? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why, you, you know, I don't know how you can what, leave health care. I, I don't know how you can leave health care in the condition it is. And yet let's all run on to daycare and to uh, dental care. And, you know, whenever you ask the prime minister about health care, well, it's a provincial mandate. Well, so is dental care and so is daycare. But that doesn't stop him from getting involved in that. You want to know something, by the way, let me just change, if I can, let me just take this on a swerve a little bit, because we have spent an awful lot of time, an awful lot of time, not just us, like everybody, complaining about our healthcare system lately, and with good reason. I mean, there were some cracks that were exposed during COVID. I read a piece today, thankfully translated from Swedish, because my Swedish is not good. Um, it's about Boreas Salming, the former Leaf defenseman who right. now has ALS, and mm. is apparently not doing all that well. This is moving along very quickly. It was in a Swedish newspaper. And his wife was talking about how they have to keep coming to Canada to get this treatment that they can't get in Sweden, that our healthcare system there stinks. I thought I Sweden thinking, was utopia. 
well, this is what I thought. And so it's like, oh, wait a second. Are, is every place now struggling with healthcare? Because we know we're told constantly the state's healthcare system stinks. And I thought that ours was okay until I was told it wasn't. And then we were told that Scandinavia was ideal. And now <laughs> they're saying there are things that are not working well there. So, Scott, I like, is there a healthcare system that works? And, and and it's an honest question after reading this article. Is there a is there a healthcare system that works, or have we perhaps set our standards to the point of expecting perfection, which we I can think, never get? I think we have a healthcare system. We have examples of a healthcare system that works. It's in the United States. It just doesn't service everyone. That's the problem. And for some reason, in order to service everyone, we have to lower the bar so low that it becomes Canada's. I don't get that. I don't get why we can't do the same high level of of uh, of contact that the U.S. has here in Canada. Why why can't we do that? Well, volume. I mean, the service is there. What's lacking is it's not accessible to everybody. So here it's universal, but because of that, we have to lower the bar, and you have to wait six months for your new knee or whatever. Yeah, and, and so again, we look at things that are happening here, and we say not good, got to fix it. We look at things in the states, different things perhaps, and we say not good, got to fix it. And now I'm reading that in Sweden, there are things that are not good, got to fix it. It's uh, all this has done. My point is simply, I don't know, and maybe I'm being too cynical, but I don't know if there is a healthcare system that exists that will satisfy people. And that's not to say we shouldn't try and fix ours. I'm not saying that for a second. But we pay, like in this country, we pay an extraordinary amount of money into healthcare, an extraordinary amount of money into healthcare, and we're still saying it's got all these horrendous flaws, which I don't doubt that it has. I just wonder if maybe we need to recalibrate, or maybe we need to refocus on certain things. I, Scott, my point is, I'm, I'm I, I don't know the answer to this. I was just really shocked to hear that other places that we believe have these amazing systems also have problems how many times have we talked about we got to feed the poor how can we live in a world like this and in there are people starving how can that possibly happen and then all of a sudden we're trying to vaccinate the whole world and we clearly see what the problems are there's politics there's all sorts of different things that are involved in feeding the poor or vaccinating the poor these problems will always be there because not every part of the world is exactly the same so those politicians that say they can fix this no you can manage it that's well, really and, and, and fixing it seems to always, the answer to fixing it always seems to be the same answer. More, more money, money. Yeah. more money. And yet, as I said, if you look, and I don't have the number in front of me because I didn't know you were going to ask me this today, but the, the amount of money that Canadians on a per capita basis are putting into healthcare, yeah, and we're now saying our system is horrendously broken. Well, how much money is enough then? Like Scott, of the, of the yep. whatever thousand dollars it is in your taxes every year, if we double that, and we charge you an extra 5000 per person in your family, will it fix it? I don't know, Scott, but I don't think so. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. One week out from the Hamilton elections, and I'm excited to start looking into the candidates as I have no idea who's for what. Should I have started this last week? Oh, and I'm busy today. Uh, well, I guess I'll start that tomorrow then. We're only one week out. I've got time, right? R- right? Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.